Well, good morning. My name is Taylor Reevely. It's a privilege to be with you this morning, to preach this morning, to remind you of who you are in Jesus this morning. This summer, I spent a lot of time escapating through the Mount Hood wilderness, and I learned a new strategy for how to hike in the woods. And it's, it's really this, uh, this ultralight idea that the less weight on your back, the easier it will be to go for a long hike. Usually, though, when you're just on a day hike, the weight that you're going to leave behind is your water. And so I started hiking now just with a little water bag and a water filter and planning my route accordingly. So I'd come to a stream and fill up the bag and suck the water through the filter. And in theory, it would work great. I tried that for the first time, though, on a 90 degree day in the middle of August on the top of Mount Hood, a mile closer to the sun than we earthlings down here. And it was good in theory. But on the first, in the first mile of the hike, I had drank all of the water that I had carried. And the, I, I was rounding, rounding a bend, and the map showed a stream. But around the bend, there was no stream. Oh. So I looked at the map again, and there was another little body of water, maybe another mile further. But that, too, had dried up. Finally, there was the sound of this little trickle. And a little trickle was enough to get me excited at this point. And you know, your, your tongue begin, becomes like sandpaper in your mouth. You just, anything, just for a sip. And sure enough, there was water in abundance, running continually off the side of the mountain. And I filled up my, my water bag and drank the whole thing. And I filled up another one and drank the whole thing. And I filled up another one and I threw it in my backpack. And I wasn't going to leave without it. Because I knew that in only another hour, I was going to be thirsty again. That's a strange thing about water, is that it quenches your thirst, and yet it needs, you need it again in an hour. So, I discovered a little bit in that moment that this thing that refreshes you, that, that gives you life, Really, that changes you, who you are. It, morale improved, you know. Energy restored. Life given through this water. That same thing that accomplished it when I first found that trickle is the same thing that will keep me alive, keep me refreshed, keep me energized as I round each corner. And the same thing, I think, could be said about the Gospel. Here we talk about our identity that we need the Gospel in the same way that we need a drink of water. No matter how much we drink at one time, we'll be thirsty again in an hour. And that has nothing to do with the quality of the water or the quality of the gospel. It has to do with the nature of the, of the drinker, that I'm, I'm dependent on water. And so we as a church admit that we are dependent on the gospel. We talk about our identity as a church, and at the very beginning, the very front of this little booklet about our identity, it says we need the gospel. This is at the forefront of who we are as a church. We depend on Jesus daily. Because as a church, we believe that the thing that makes us alive, the thing that changes our identity, that gives us life, is the thing that keeps us alive. The thing that makes us alive, that which gives us life, 
He's the thing that keeps us alive. So when we say we need the gospel, I think we're begging three questions. The first one is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? And then, why do we need the gospel? And then finally, as a church, how do we help each other get the gospel? So let's ask the first question, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The gospel is satisfyingly simple. In a sentence, the gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, according to the Scriptures, to reconcile you to God. It's like water. There's no caramel coloring added or CO2 infused. It's, it's pure. It's simple. And it satisfies. Simply, the word gospel means good news. And it is that news that Jesus has died, was buried, and rose again to reconcile you to God. Perhaps this is the first time you've heard this good news. Perhaps this is the first time that maybe you've even stopped to think that this news could be good for you. Or that the goal of this is to reconcile you to God. This morning, as we've already prayed, would Father give us hope and give us faith? Would you have faith and believe responding to this news? This is news that demands a response. It's a headline that you can't just scroll past on your news feed. It's one you must engage with. That Jesus has died, was buried, and rose again, according to the Scriptures, to reconcile you to God. What will you do with that news? And as satisfyingly simple as this good news, it is also captivatingly complex. It's like a diamond that you hold in your hand. In one, hand, in one sense, it's very simple. It's just a rock. In another sense, though, every cut and every facet of the diamond shines and refracts a different color of light. It's got a different angle, a different reflection. It's three-dimensional. You can see through it to the other side. And if you were to hold in your hand this diamond and to delight in it and be amazed by it every day, you might say, what is the gospel in this complex version? And yes, the gospel is an event. It is the event that Christ died, was buried, and rose again. That is the event which Paul delivers to you of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I deliver to you as of first importance the, the most important thing in the world, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The Gospel is simple news. It is a simple event. But there's a phrase that Paul uses several times in the description of the Gospel, according to the Scriptures. And you're holding this diamond and you say, but what is that little, what does that little phrase mean? And you turn the diamond in your hand to consider the according to the Scriptures. And you begin to understand that the Gospel is not merely an event. It is, it is a plan. It is a grand plan that began before Scripture was written, before creation. And it will end in the future. It is this plan of God. It 
The Bible is not primarily a book of rules or even a book that contains principles for how to live a good life. We believe the Bible is primarily a story. It's primarily a story about a God who created humanity. He placed them in a garden which he had prepared for them. And the purpose was that they might enjoy and participate in this, in this fellowship and in union and in intimacy with God. And on the second page of this story, the first man and woman say, we don't want to be with God, we want to be God. It's not enough for us to enjoy God. We want to enjoy being God. A rebellion in which disowned and ran away from God, they were kicked out of the garden in this presence of God, now experiencing the full spectrum of brokenness apart from God. The rest of the Old Testament from page 4 until the end is a story about God pursuing these people to win them back calling out at every corner on every page, come back, come back to me. And as soon as you reach the end of the Old Testament, you turn the first page of the New Testament, you read a genealogy of a guy named Jesus. The God-man Jesus. The Word became flesh Jesus, who is a descendant of Adam, a descendant of Noah, a descendant of Abraham, a descendant of Moses, a descendant of David. God pursuing people, inviting them back into that community such that God became a man and dwelt among humanity. Jesus lived the perfect life that you could not live, died the death you deserve to die because of your rebellion against God, rose again victorious and now offers life to any who would believe. That story doesn't end with an empty grave. It ends with this reconciled picture of everything restored and as it should be. The story ends in a garden city again with humanity experiencing God's perfect presence again. So in one respect, the gospel is merely this zoomed-in focus on Jesus, His death, burial, and resurrection. In another sense, the gospel is this whole plan that all of Scripture reveals. If you were to take that diamond and spin it in your hand and look at another angle, you might find that the gospel is also an achievement. It is an accomplishment. Jesus lived the perfect life and offers a perfect sacrifice for all who would believe. Jesus has done it. He has satisfied the wrath of God. Hebrews begins by saying, after making purification for sins, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, signaling that it is done and it is finished. All has been accomplished, needed to pay for sin, needed to reconcile humanity with the Creator. But the gospel is not merely an achievement that happened 2,000 years ago. The gospel is an offer to you today. The gospel is an offer to each person, regardless of race, regardless of gender, regardless of social class. Because if it was restricted and narrow in that sense, it would not be good news, but it is good news because it is free to all who would believe the achievement might be yours.
The gospel is an offer because it is received by faith. If this gospel was to be received by works, it would not be good news. It would not be a good offer. Because you could not and you would not ever accrue enough merit to deserve the gospel. So the gospel, yes, in an event, yes, a plan, yes, an achievement of Jesus, yes, an offer. And when you accept that offer, the gospel becomes personal. Now the gospel is, is not theory or, or, or a, he, a headline in the news. Now the gospel is applied to you. Now the wrath of God is satisfied on your behalf so that you might be justified, so that you might be forgiven, so that you might experience life again as it was meant to be lived. The gospel is, is personal. You, when you re- accept this offer, are given new life. The gospel, however, lest you become selfish, is not merely personal. The gospel is also corporate. The gospel creates a people who have one Savior and one King, Jesus. If you were to look around the room, you'll see a lot of different people. And the one thing that people who have been saved and follow Jesus have in common is this gospel. The gospel is, yes, an event. Yes, it's a plan. Yes, it's an achievement. It's an offer. It's personal. It's corporate. And I think a helpful question to ask is, so what? So what? What is the goal of the gospel? What's the point? So what that I'm forgiven? Why does it matter that I'm forgiven? So what if I'm justified? So what if Christ has satisfied the wrath of God? For what purpose? To what end? Would you look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 reveals to us in some small measure the goal of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him, to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, 
Peter writes in his letter, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. The goal of the gospel, the goal of the justification, the goal of the the headline, the goal of being forgiven is not to be forgiven or to be justified. The goal is to be united, reconciled to God. If the story of God begins in a garden where he has created humanity in perfect intimacy with himself, the goal of the gospel is to get you back to that place. If God is truly the source of all delight, the only one who can satisfy the longing of your heart, if it truly was the best world imaginable for the first man and first woman to walk with God, to talk with God, then the goal of the gospel is to to get you back. In fact, there is no other way to get back aside from the gospel. Your heart will always be longing for something until it finds its satisfaction in God. So he would say, delight in God is the goal of the gospel. That you might not be reconciled to him merely in word or even in position as a forgiven or justified person but that you might be reconciled to him fully and finally and completely. This gospel, this good news, this multifaceted good news has profound impact on our identity as a church. If you were to take that little booklet and open to the very first page, you would find that the mission of the church is to engage those who are disconnected from God so that they delight in Him through Jesus. Does that sound like gospel? That our identity as a church, our purpose, our mission as a church is to do gospel, to live gospel, to bring gospel, to speak gospel, to experience gospel, that we might be connected to God, delighting in Him through Jesus. And the first step that we identify in pursuit of that mission, in the practice of that mission, is that we admit readily again today, we need the gospel. So my question now is, why do we need this good news? Why do we need the gospel? I think there are two reasons. We need the gospel to make us alive. And we need the gospel to keep us alive. We need the gospel to refresh us, to change our identities, to make us new. And we need the gospel to help us walk as new people, walk as living and saved people. Turn with me a couple pages back to Ephesians chapter 2, and I want to read to you, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 2 in the book of Ephesians. 
And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Good news or bad news? Bad news. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This morning, if you have not yet been made alive with Christ, if, you, if you're experiencing life, if your heart is beating as a physiological reality but not as a spiritual reality, living in resurrection life, by grace, through faith, you might be made alive. By grace, through faith, you might find Jesus to be not merely a historical figure but actually a Savior and actually a king. And he is a good savior and a good king. And then our tendency, for some reason, after we have received that good news, accepted the offer, been made alive, is to somehow then think, I'm saved. I got my ticket. And now I must get to work. Now it's time to fix my marriage to find a job, to stop looking at porn, to start a discipleship relationship, to read my Bible more, to pray more, to go to church more, to give more. We work harder to get more, to do better, and we forget the gospel. On day two of being saved, we forget the gospel. The gospel is not it's not the ABCs of Christianity that you then get to leave. It is the A to Z. It is the sum and substance of what it means to be a Christian, is to walk in gospel, is to live gospel. And the rest of Colossians, if you still have your finger there, the rest of Colossians is really about how you stay alive in gospel. The rest of Colossians is written to explain that this gospel was not merely factual in your past, but is a reality that transforms every minute of your present. Turn back to Colossians 2, verse 6 and 7, which Chris read a moment ago. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Therefore, as you have received Christ, remember Ephesians 2. How do you receive Christ? By grace through faith. 
as you have received him, so walk in him. And there, the apostle gives four descriptions of what this walking looks like. What does it look like to walk in him? You might identify that this walker is rooted. The one who walks is built up in him, established and abounding in thanksgiving. And you'll notice here that the the present command to walk in him, the first description is a past reality. Having been rooted, so walk in him. How many of you have ever transplanted a tree? It's where you dig it up and you move it. And you replant it. Transplant. When you're you're moving the tree, what's your primary concern? The leaves? The The leaves can fall off. The trunk or the branches, those may break. The primary concern are the roots. The tree could look as dead as can be imagined. And if the roots are alive and you stick it in the ground, the roots breathe life into this tree. How strange would it be if you transplanted a tree, the roots grow deep, and you put it perhaps in a specific place just outside your kitchen window, and you woke up one morning and the tree had moved. Perhaps the roots are still in the ground, but the trunk had been moved and just like shoved in the ground 10 feet away. How strange would that be? That doesn't make any sense at all. And if the tree chose to do that, you would question the sanity of the tree. The roots are your life. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul is writing here, you have been rooted, don't leave your roots. You've been rooted in gospel, in him. Don't leave that. Don't for a moment forget that you need the roots to live. Past tense, that's already happened. That's already happened when you received him. The roots, the transplant was successful. So walk in him having been firmly rooted. The second description is walk in him being built up in him. And while the first illustration was of a tree, the second illustration is of a building. Normally when the Apostle Paul uses this building analogy, he talks about building upon the foundation that is Christ. Upon, as though we lay a foundation and then we build the rest of the building, or the church is built. In this case, however, the preposition is in. There is, no, there is no building upon Christ in this walking in him. It is a building in him. The, the very structure and fabric of the building itself, which holds it together, is him. The picture is that you don't get to lay the foundation and then figure out the rest. But that the foundation is Christ and the joists are Christ and the the risers are Christ, and the studs are Christ, and the sheetrock is Christ. The whole structure is Christ. So be built up in Him. The third way you walk in Him is being established in the faith. 
You're, you're rooted, you're being built up in him, and finally you're being established in the faith, just as you were taught. I, th- I think about that this way. It, when you were young, you were taught that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Right? That's like first grade math, maybe kindergarten math. And the goal of teaching you that 2 plus 2 equals 4 is not that your math IQ would terminate at 2 plus 2 equals 4. It is not as though you have arrived at 2 plus 2 equals 4. But the goal of teaching you 2 plus 2 equals 4 is to help you in middle school understand that 2 plus X equals 4. And the goal of 2 plus X equals 4 that you're using today, every day, that you don't realize is that a coffee plus a muffin equals 4. And the goal of math was not to terminate on the math itself and on your understanding of it, but was to transform the way you live. And in such a way, you don't leave, you can't leave that math principle behind you when you go into the grocery store. In fact, you can't separate yourself from that mathematical principle because you have been established in it. The whole goal of 2 plus 2 equals 4 is that one day the basic math would become so ingrained and so established that it would become an assumed passive reality in your life that you don't even think about. You do math every day and you don't even know it. You're counting down till lunchtime and you're doing math and you don't even know it. And in the same way, this gospel that you've been taught, perhaps as a child, mature in that. The the goal of the gospel is not that it would terminate on your forgiveness or on your justification, your standing with God, but that it would, you would mature in it. That you would hold the diamond in your hand and turn it every day to find another angle, another light, to find life in it every day, to use it every day so passively that you don't even think about it that you are a gospel transformed person. So walk in him being established in the faith just as you were taught. And finally, walk in him abounding in thanksgiving. The the good news is not merely to make you alive. And the good news is to keep you alive. All of this to the glory of God. All of it to the glory of God. As I read a moment ago, dead in trespasses and sin, following Satan. Every rebellion, every act of rebellion that could be committed against God has been. You have looked for a little God in everything else. The good news was not given to you because you were beautiful. It was not given to you because you were lovely. It was not given to you because you had figured it out or worked hard enough to earn it. It was given to you because God, being rich in mercy, made you alive. And so now that that has made you alive, it's not up to you to keep you alive. Because the gospel is designed to keep you alive so that every day you would abound in thanksgiving again. So that every day you would recognize that you haven't made it, that you couldn't earn it, that you don't deserve it, and yet God has given it freely. Abounding in thanksgiving. Paul apparently does believe that this gospel, that the thing that makes you alive does in fact keep you alive. Look at the next verse in Colossians 2, verse 8. The next thing he says, as you've received him, so walk in him, abounding in thanksgiving. 
See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Right on the heels of this walk in the Gospels, a warning of what to be aware of. A warning that says you're going to need to be walking in the gospel if you're going to have a chance. What are, what may be some of those philosophies or some of those empty deceits according to human tradition? And how does the gospel keep me alive? I want to just give you a couple examples here. What does this empty deceit say to you? When you sin again. What does this say? It seems to say to me, you need to try harder and do better next time. Try harder, do better. Try harder, do better. What is it that the gospel says to me when I sin? You are forgiven saint. You are righteous. Do you remember how you became forgiven? Do you remember how you became a saint in the first place? You see, you were never good enough. You were never good enough to to earn forgiveness. You were never good enough to become sainted. You could never have made yourself righteous. But Jesus was. And so now, as you've received Jesus by grace through faith, accepting his perfection as your perfection, being found in him, covered in him, forgiven by him, so walk in him, rooted, built up, and established, abounding in thanksgiving. What, what might empty deceit say when you grow to despise the reflection in the mirror every morning? What does empty deceit say to you then? Empty deceit says, perhaps, you're not lovable. You're not worthy of someone's attention or love. You, in fact, need a new diet. You need to change your whole wardrobe. A new haircut could help. My question here, the gospel keeping me alive is, What is it that makes me lovable? What is it that makes me loved? That's an interesting question. What is it that makes you loved? Is it the fact that you're lovable that makes you loved? No, the fact that what makes you loved is that you are loved in reality. The gospel tells you you are loved. The gospel speaks life into death. You are loved and you are lovely because you are loved by Jesus. So when you look at yourself in the mirror, you say to yourself, I'm loved by Jesus. He loves me as I am. I didn't have to clean myself up to make myself lovely. I didn't have to get a new hairdo to make him love me. In fact, while I was his enemy, he loved me. So now as you've received him, so walk in him, rooted, built up, and established, abounding in thanksgiving. 
What might empty deceit say when God seems silent or distant? The voice you may hear is that God isn't that good. Or perhaps in the extreme, God isn't even real. You should try something else. You see if it works. Maybe just focus on family or work for a little bit. Or maybe you've got some big, deep, dark secret that you need to address. You should probably fix that. Empty deceit, see it, 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 that this deceit always invites a way of life. The gospel invites a way of life and the lie invites a way of life. Commanding and changing the way that you actually live. But the question here is, what is it that made God close to you in the first place? He feels distant now compared to what? To the closeness you felt at some point? What is it that made God close to you? How certain could you be that God is actually good, actually cares, actually pursues you? According to the gospel that I read a moment ago in Ephesians chapter 2, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in coming ages he might show us immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. What was it that made you feel close to God in the beginning? What is it that seeded you with Christ? Faith. So what do you need now? What do you need now to get more faith? How do I get more faith today? If that's what what initially brought me and reconciled me to God, how do I get more faith so that I am still walking as a reconciled person, close, seated with God? The same way you received it, by grace, as a gift of God. Not by works, not by something new, not by a new tactic, not by a new diversion, not even by doing more and better in your quiet times. God gives the gift of faith. You get it the same way as you got it initially, by running empty-handed, saying, I need faith. Have you asked him? You wonder where he is. Have you asked him for faith? Because this is gospel in real life. This is gospel not just as a past reality, but as a present reality. That I can respond to the gospel today by expecting that by grace through faith, I will be seated with him still. I'll be reconciled with him still. One of, one of our common prayers in, in the evenings and mornings in our house is, is this prayer. It's, Jesus, keep me believing tonight. Let me wake again in the morning still believing. And in the morning at breakfast, it's, thank you for keeping me believing while I slept. I didn't forget you. You didn't run away while I was sleeping. Ask God for faith. And that is a response, that is a, that is a way that the gospel works its way into your life. It's a way that the walking in Him keeps you alive. 
when the lie is just whispering death. The gospel which makes you alive, which made you alive, past tense, is the gospel that keeps you alive. The water that you drank when you were parched is the water you're going to need again in another mile. It is your life. And so we've, as a church, we individually admit we need the gospel. We collectively admit we need the gospel. So how then do we help each other get the gospel? How is that? Why is the church the tool used to keep each other in the gospel? I want to think about this in like three realms and, and um, we'll think about it as individuals. How do you get the gospel as an individual? How do you stay in the gospel? How do you do that as a life group? And then finally, how do we do that as a congregation? As individuals, we begin each day admitting again we need the gospel again. You can set an alarm on your phone. Your alarm can talk to you now. And you can set an alarm that says, you need the gospel again today. We, we get the gospel by rehearsing it. And rehearsing it may mean that we read the Bible. We read this story, this plan of the gospel into which you have been written. Perhaps you rehearse the gospel. There's a tool that we use here a lot called the gospel primer for Christians. And it's a tool to help you rehearse the gospel. If you don't have one, we'd love to get one in your hands. Make a note on the connection card. A great tool to help you rehearse and remember the gospel every waking minute. As life groups, we rehearse the gospel every time we gather. The gospel comes up in our discussion. We pray. We eat together. But one of the ways that we apply the gospel to each other's lives is by using that word gospel as a verb. The first time I heard the word gospel as a verb, it struck me, it struck me a funny way that I could or you could gospel someone. Usually when it's used as a verb, it's a verbal reminder. It's where you speak gospel into someone's life. It could also be an action. But usually you speak gospel. You remind someone of this good news that they're a part of. This, this happened. I was gospeled very recently in our life group. Um, one of the guys in our group raised his hand and asked a question to the whole group. He said, how many of you are righteous? How many of you are righteous? And no one in the group raised their hand. It must have been a crummy day. And he said, you are Righteous. You are righteous. In Christ, you've been forgiven and he has given you all of his righteousness. You have been made right. Now live as righteous people. I thought, I just got gospeled. I needed that. And guess what? I'm going to need it again. And so if you're not in a life group where people are gospeling you regularly or where you are gospeling others, you must join that kind of community. Be in that kind of relationship where you can help someone else get the gospel. As congregations, um, we build plans, schedules, and programs. The whole life of the church orbits the gospel. Everything we do is in orientation to the gospel. We sing songs. Uh, they might not be our favorite volume. They might not be our favorite tune. But they're designed to get us the gospel. 
We're singing and celebrating the gospel. We preach Jesus in all the difficult passages in the Bible because they all highlight another one of those captivatingly complex facets of the gospel. We don't skip them. We choose our curriculum. We arrange our gatherings. We schedule our events around not what will be most fun, what will be most flashy or attractive, but what will keep us in the gospel. And together this morning, we get to practice another way that as a congregation, we get to remind each other of the gospel as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge that what made us alive keeps us alive. That we haven't moved on or graduated to the next level. That we are still fundamentally people needing to be reconciled to God through Jesus. This morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, would you use this time to reflect, acknowledging that God has made us alive. Remember the facts of your salvation. Use this time to rehearse, remembering how God has made you alive, what he has done in your life, what he has done in accomplishing victory on your behalf. Use this time to admit our ongoing dependence on the gospel to keep us alive. Use this time to celebrate and anticipate the realization of the goal of the gospel, which is communion with God. And use this time to abound in thanksgiving to God. So during the next song, would you make your way to one of the tables in the front or in the rear, through the center aisle, take the bread and the juice, return to your seat, and in just a few moments, we will all celebrate and together acknowledge our need for the gospel again today, together. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, would you keep us? Would you keep us from wandering? Would you keep us from forgetting? Would you keep us from feeling as though we've graduated or moved on? Would you keep us rooted and established and built up and abounding in thanksgiving for what you have accomplished on our behalf in the gospel? Jesus, would this be a gospel church? Would we be a gospel church? Known for the fact that we haven't moved on from gospel to some new gimmick or trick, but that we have rooted ourselves, that we orbit, that everything we do is in perspective to this gospel. We need your help to keep us. Spirit, work in our hearts. Remind us, whisper in our ear that we are children, that we are yours. We depend on you as much tomorrow, as much today, to keep us as we depended on you when you got us. We love you and need you in your name. Amen.